Let's get going. Hebrews chapter 12, we're in, or I'm sorry, actually Hebrews 13, we're into the, the, the final chapter of Hebrews. It's going to take us three weeks to get through it. Uh, these are the final instructions. Um, they, they are given to the, the people of God's new covenant that he's worked out in and through Jesus Christ. The, last week the, the, we saw the, the people of Zion. They're not the people of Sinai. They're the people of Zion, the people who've come to this eternal kingdom, an, an unshakable kingdom. And if you'll remember, uh, th- th- that's kind of where we left off at, is that the, this is who we are, and because of who we are, this is what we do. In fact, that's kind of been the whole bent in this, in this application portion of the letter ha- has been, this is who we are, and so because of who we are, this is, well, first it started with, this is who Jesus is, and because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, this is what we do. And so we're going to kind of pick up with that same theme. You'll see it, see it working out as he continues to call the church to live in a particular way. Hebrews chapter 13 is really going to, well, actually for context, we're going to start in Hebrews 12, 28 and read through 13, 8. Uh, and I expect, I plan that we'll be able to get through this section today. Uh, but you're going to notice that he begins to just kind of give some bullet point instructions. And it seems at first, maybe they're not connected but there is a way in which they, they are, and I, I, I trust you'll see that as we work our way through. So, let's read Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, we'll read through 13, 8. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you out of, or spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Father, help us now. By your spirit, you've, you've promised that you would lead us into truth and and that we would see Jesus, know Jesus, and be able to live in response to Jesus. And so by your word today, I just would ask that you would work. As we look at these instructions, that we would approach them for what they are. Expressions of faith, and expressions of love, and expressions of worship. And not a law to be followed to enter into something. So, so help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting as we've worked through this practical application portion of Hebrews. It goes all the way back. It starts back at chapter 10, uh, right around verse 19. Uh, there's, there's been this intentional, purposeful working from the inside out. So he starts looking at the inner person, looking at faith and endurance. These are things that happen within a person that happen internally, that then show themselves in the ways that we live. So there's this head and heart reality that happens that leads to how we act with our hands or the things that we do with our hands. Uh, the, the reality is, is that we, we need to keep this 
focus. We need to, even though we're reading this and it's so easy to, to just assume, well, now these are the rules I'm supposed to live by. And if I live by these rules, Jesus will love me or Jesus will accept me or Jesus will whatever. That, that, that is, that, that, that's why we had to step back to chapter 12, verse 28, so that we could see the foundation of, of, of where we're starting and, and, and what's the motive for this. It's so important for us to realize that to, to, to approach these instructions as an expression of who we are, as a, as, a, as a way in which we now live because of who we are, it, it's... Let, let me say, so, so I use this illustration when we go into Africa quite a bit and we're, we're dealing with people who are agricultural and they're, 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 they just think in these ways and it's, it's very normal uh, for them. They, they have donkey carts that tote stuff around all the time. In fact, I had the honor of riding a donkey cart across a border at one point. It was really kind of a fun experience, you know. But, but the reality is the donkey has to go before the cart, right? The donkey has to pull the cart. You know this. There's a saying we have. You never get the cart before the horse. What happens if you get the cart before the horse? It doesn't work. It causes all kinds of problems. And then we want to do the same thing here. We don't, we, 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 don't want to, we, don't, we don't want the donkey pushing the cart. We want the donkey pulling it. We want, we, want the, we want the truth to pull us in. We want the identity of who we are, the, the, the reasons or, or, or the work of God in our lives to draw out of us the reality of what we do. And so, so the cart being these instructions, these ways in which we live, the donkey or the horse being the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus has done and who he's made us because of what he's done. That pulls that draws, that becomes the thing that pulls all of this other stuff alongside. If you get them reversed, it's destructive, it's harmful, it's hurtful. Here's the difference. So if I seek to live in a way that's honorable to God because I trust in Jesus and it's an expression of my faith, then that becomes worship. But if I approach God seeking to obey all of these commands and, and to take this and accept it as a law and say, look, God, look at all these good things I've done. I've continued in brotherly love. I've honored marriage, but I've never trusted in your son. And in fact, I don't think I really needed him because look at what I've done. Then Jesus is going to look at me and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. One is healthy expression of faith and worship, and one is just more Phariseeism wrapped up in some new, some, some, some uh, baptized way of living. It just doesn't work. And so we need to be careful about this. And even here, this author, even here, this author is not jumping into these, into these stated commands as if now, if you do these things, you become acceptable. He is rooting them in and founding them on the fact that we are recipients. We are already recipients. We are beneficiaries. We have been given a gift of this unshakable kingdom. Look at it, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have received this. It's been given to us. And because of that, then... Let us do these things. And this is the point. This is the point. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to live lives that reflect the character of our unchanging king. 
As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to live lives, are called to lives that reflect the character of our unchanging king. This is not like getting socks and underwear for Christmas and, 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 and then just, okay, well, I got socks and underwear for Christmas. I guess I'll start wearing my less holy underwear and my socks without my toes sticking out of them. Mm, man, I, every time I think of something like this, I, th- I think of, uh, of, of Ralphie in the movie The Christmas Story standing at the top of the stairs in his pink bunny outfit that someone, his aunt, had given him with the best of intentions... But he is not very happy about it. And it shows. It's clear. He's not grateful for it. He's not appreciative. Of it. He doesn't want it. In fact, his parents even go so far as to say, his parents even go so far as to say, you only have to wear it when she's around. If you're a parent, or even for those of you that received Christmas presents at some point, that you didn't appreciate the gift, but you said, ah, oh, thank you, but didn't really mean it. This is not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a, a, a genuine and authentic, robust uh, uh, response to understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what God is accomplishing through him. God is establishing an unshakable and eternal kingdom. And he's given it to you. He's given it to me. Together, we're members of that kingdom. And as recipients of that kingdom, there's a right and good response that this author is now calling us to. A, a life that, that reflects and, and, and mimics and, and honors the character of our unchangeable, unchanging king. And we'll see that work out as we work our way through it. But, but let's, just, let's just step in and see what are these instructions, what are these expectations. First, in verse 28 and 29, as recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to lives of active worship. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is our consuming fire. This idea of worship in this verse, it is not about... And I touched on this a little bit last week, but it was near the end. And I didn't, I didn't deal with it deeply. Uh, but, but this idea of worship. I, we, we see worship in this very small uh, the, the word was used earlier in, in a discussion about something else, but, but this very, we, we, we get tunnel vision. And when we talk about worship, we talk about what's happening right now in this room. And, and honestly, many of us in, in broader Christian culture don't even think about what's happening in this moment as worship. We think of the singing portions as worship. And, and we're going to gather and we're going to worship. We're going to sing. This word has nothing to do with singing. It has nothing ultimately to do or directly to do with gathering. It has ultimately everything to do with serving. In fact, the word really speaks of a service that's given in honor and devotion to someone or something else. And so he calls us to give our lives in this active serving worship. This is the idea that Paul had in Romans chapter 1 when he or Romans chapter 12 when he is closing out his gospel proclamation and turning to his gospel application. Paul writes in Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the translation there is worship, but the word really speaks to serving, active service. It's not simply gather and sing. In fact, it doesn't have anything to do with gathering and singing. There are other verses that speak of us gathering and praising. But the word really is about service. 
It's translated from this idea that we serve God, that we give our lives in full devotion to Him so that we live to His glory in all that we do. We talk about that quite a bit here. In fact, it's part of our very primary purposes for existing as a church. Maybe you've heard us say because of the gospel, we worship and lead others to worship the one true living God. This idea of worship, and we, every time we talk about this, and every time we speak of the vision and purposes of this church, we always have to remind, this is not about simply gathering and singing. This is an important time. This is necessary for us. This is so, so, so important for the life of the Christian to be gathered together here, singing praises, hearing his word preached. This is so important. I don't want to dismiss that. But worship isn't ultimately only about sitting and hearing the word preached or singing songs of praise. There is a way in which it affects and guides our whole life. And so we give our lives in worship, service to God, so that others can see the glory of God and thereby begin to worship God. In a sense, this is what Peter's getting at when he writes to his first letter to the church. He writes 1 Peter 4.10, As each has received a gift... Now, this is not the same gift as the receiving the, the unshakable kingdom. He's speaking specifically about spiritual gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. The idea is, and what he's picking up on, is as God has gifted you, he doesn't need you to serve him with that gift. He gifted you. He, he came to us. He's given us all he's given us, not because he needs us to do something for him, but so that we can do something for others. And then just a few words later, listen to why he says, 1 Peter 4, 11, it's at the very end, in the very next verse, this is why he's done it. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. That's exactly what I believe this, this author of Hebrews is getting at. He's calling us, because you have received such a glorious gift, an unshakable kingdom, because he has done so much good for you, worship him, revere, and, and be in awe of him. Think and consider all that he's done. Consider all the ways that he served you. Consider all the ways that he's blessed you. And now, because he has, worship him with your whole life, with all that you do. Gathered in this room and even with other believers outside of this room and even with unbelievers outside of this room living to the glory of God so that people can see and experience His glory here and now and may turn and worship Him. Everything about our lives, about our lives is to this because we are members of Jesus' unshakable kingdom we are called to this act of worship. And he keeps going. See, in, in, in the original letter, the, there's no break. There's no new heading. There's no, there's no new chapter. It just keeps going on. Let brotherly love continue. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to love one another like family. The word, as many of you will know, is the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's made from two words, philo, it's a general word for love, and adelphos, which is a brother or a familial connection. That's the idea, is that we have this brotherly affection, this brotherly love. We love one another 
like family. Now, you've probably heard the saying that blood is thicker than water, right? Like the idea is, is that the, the intents to show the, the strength of family bonds over friendships or even romance. And we know that's true. We absolutely know in our experience that that happens to be true, that, that man, somebody comes against your family, there's a way in which, in fact, my, my brothers and sisters, we used to beat on each other, we used to treat each other so badly. But if anybody messed with us, that was it, right? Like we were for one another, even though we were often against one another. You can verify that with my sister. She's here today. You can verify that with my mother. She's here today. But that's the way we were. This idea that blood's thicker than water, this idea that you can, I, I can mess with her, but you can't mess with her. She can mess with me, but she's not going to stand for somebody else to mess with me. But in Jesus' unshakable kingdom, his blood is stronger than ours stronger than the DNA or the experience of brother and sister. It binds people who aren't related by lineage to be and become an eternal family. We are called to love one another as if we have always been and will always be brothers and sisters. And if you think about what Jesus said uh, in Luke, he says, I came not to bring peace but a sword dividing families, right? When we are called into this people, there's a deeper, stronger, longer-lasting relationship than maybe, possibly, even those from our house. This, this love, as, as defined by and demonstrated by Jesus, it's clearly a distinguishing factor. It shouldn't surprise us that it's here in one of the first explanations or, or calls to who we are to be as Christians, Jesus himself says, John chapter 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, listen, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This love, this familial, committed decision, choosing to be good to one another, this is a distinguishing factor in the world in which we live. Certainly there's forms of love. Certainly there's ways in which parents love children, husbands love wives, wives love children. Certainly there's expressions of that in the world. But this crosses all of those boundaries beyond socioeconomic division, beyond what's typical and what's normal. We are bound together with a love that binds us together in an un earthly, and according to them, a less than normal commitment to one another. This marks us and distinguishes us. Later, in his first letter to the church, John is writing about love and how it's expected, almost uh, automatic. He writes 1 John 3.10, and I would hope that many of you are familiar with this because we just studied it a little bit ago. By this, it is evident who are the children of God. Wait a minute. This is a distinguishing mark. It's evident because of this. And who are children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's interesting to me that as John writes this, and we didn't deal with this this deeply in, in, in that study, but it's interesting to me that the one who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. There's this way in which there's this expectation both of righteousness, and remember, Back in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says that, that having, come to, having come to Christ that there's this peaceful fruit of righteousness that, that's developed. But now here again we're called to this loving 
one another. It's a distinguishing mark. The way we live, the way we treat and, and, and act towards one another is a distinguishing mark of Christianity. It doesn't just mark us if we could just walk around saying, I love you, I love you, and then not act like it, right? Like so, so, so you, you hear this all the time, and I, I think the, the example I most often use and think about, I used to watch The Voice. It's, I'm not encouraging that. I'm just saying I used to watch The Voice. And these, I don't know, I assume they were female voices coming from the Coming from the audience, you never got to see who they were, but the high pitch, like, uh, Adam, we love you. I, I don't even know if he's still on the voice. And he would say, I love you too. How fake is that? He doesn't even know who he's talking to, for one. He, what, what, what does he mean when he says that? What do they mean when they say that? I don't think it's at all in any way what the Bible depicts as real true love. And certainly John wouldn't accept it as that. First John 3, 18, just a few verses past the, the, first, the, the last thing I just read. Little children, let us not w- love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. There's a reality. If, if we have stuff and we say we love somebody, but when we don't help them with stuff, there's a reality that we're not really loving them. If we're saying I love you, but our actions don't follow... This is the distinguishing factor, and he's calling us to this. He's calling us to love one another as if, as if we come from the same womb. You just could think about that. You're born of the same parents. Every person in this room claiming, trusting Christ, born of the same seed, to use a doctrinal term. We belong to the same family. And so in a world where everything is shaking, just think about this. This is where, where we started at, right? At the, uh, just after where we started at, God is shaking everything until nothing that can be shaken remains. In a world in which we are surrounded by everything shaking, there is a steadiness of our love for one another because we come from the same womb. Do we really identify that deeply as family? Do we really treat one another with that level of intention and affection? I'm not trying to guilt us. I'm not, don't, don't, don't hear me going for that. What, what I'm just asking is, is there not a way that we need to hear this call, this expectation, this direct result of belonging to an unshakable kingdom that we each take up the role and the call to love one another as if we're family. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to love one another this way. Let's keep going. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to practice hospitality. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect. So let brotherly love continue. And do not neglect, while you're loving one another as family, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unaware. It's interesting because we don't see this. Like when we say the word hospitality, we don't recognize any connection to the word love, brotherly love. We see none of it. But, and and I'm not probably going to say it right, but philoxenia, which is love of strangers, is the literal, would be a literal interpretation of this, is a, a way in which we're supposed to be concerned with those we, not only that we know, but also that those that we don't know. 
Back in this day, traveling was dangerous. It wasn't like you could call up Holiday Inn Express and expect to stay there that night and get some great education while you were there, right? Like, you couldn't, couldn't expect that. In fact, it was dangerous. It was, it was, it was, uh, you would prefer to stay in a private dwelling. You couldn't expect Motel 6 to come and keep a light on for you because they weren't about you. They didn't care. There wasn't a business relationship. There was no benefit. To the, there might have been a benefit to them, but they would take advantage they were, they were places to be avoided. I really appreciate one of, the, one of the ways that one of the commentators I'm reading from, uh, Peter O'Brien, puts this. He says, hospitality is a concrete and personal expression of Christian love intended to include strangers in a circle of care. So while we're gathering, while we're coming together, while we're loving one another as brothers and sisters, people from the same womb... We're not to neglect those who are coming in that we don't know. And think about this, because this is really easy for us to do. It's comfortable to have conversation with people you know. Eh, for some of us. Some of us are a little less comfortable, but it's more comfortable. Let me say it like that. It's more comfortable for us to have conversations with people we know. Much less comfortable to have conversations with people we don't know. So we're intentional about this. We strive to be intentional about this. So we developed what we call a hospitality team. That while they are greeting, and, 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 and we're not asking anybody on our hospitality team, when they see a regular attender or member walking in the door, hey, shut the door, let them open it themselves, right? Like, that's not what we're doing. But as they're opening the door and welcoming people in, they're not seeing the stranger walk up and think, oh, we don't want any of those in here. Let's keep them out. There's a way in which, as intentional as we are with one another, we're striving to be with people we don't know, in fact, I'd say it goes a step further because for our hospitality team, we're not just seeking to welcome them in. We're taking an extra step. And this is the call. This isn't just a hospitality team. This is the call on the whole church, right? We've, we've said this in the past. Now it's showing us that in Hebrews, it's, it's all of our responsibilities to do this. But not only are we seeking to welcome them in, we're actually trying to make them feel at home. There's a difference. Hey, come on in. We're glad you're here. And then they come in. Nobody says a word to them. Nobody seems to care that they're here. They can walk out and nobody's greeted them, invited them to lunch, invited them to community group, invited them deeper into life with us. If that happens, well, according to the writer of Hebrews, that's not really acceptable. We're not to neglect the stranger while we're fighting to love one another. There's a way in which we're supposed to love both. And in our community groups, we're striving to build close, intentional, purposeful relationships that can handle and endure difficult seasons of life. When the whole world is shaking, we've got these people that we can count on, that we can cling to, that we love and love us as if we're from the same womb. Well, what happens when a stranger walks into that? Or what happens when we cling so tightly to our group that we, know, we leave no room for expansion? New groups to begin or, 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 or a need to grow and multiply because we're unwilling to give up our brotherly love. You see, there's a, there's a risk with community groups, and we know it. We understand it. It's called cliques. And I'm not altogether 
listen, let me say this all the way through before you get upset with me. I'm not altogether opposed to cliques in the sense that inside of them, there's closeness that can develop. There's trust. There's intimacy. But as we're striving to live in that clique, the way we destroy or the way we, we fight against and work against our natural tendency to trust those close and love those close and not love the stranger is we listen to this command, do not neglect hospitality. Every one of our community group leaders is trained in this. They cannot continue to simply pick the people of this church over those who are trying to come into and be a part of this church. That's how we grow. That's how we gain influence. That's how we worship in life, leading others to know the glory of God so that they turn and join us in worship. Imagine a people, imagine if the apostles, Jesus' original 12, are so cliquish that they don't practice hospitality. Where does that leave us? If the church turns in on itself and doesn't welcome the stranger, how long will it last? Do not neglect. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to practice hospitality. we got to keep moving. I, got, I, I could keep talking about that, but we got to keep going. Verse 3, as recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to stand united. Look at this. Remember those who are in prison. So while you're loving one another in brotherly love, those that are with you, and you're not neglecting strangers who come among you, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. There's a way in which we're to keep in mind the people, even though they aren't with us, and they may be separated from us through time and space or whatever, they still belong to us. They're showing concern for, for others. And, 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 and this is kind of, this is difficult for us sometimes to wrap our hands around because, honestly, it's not like we have a lot of people in our church or churches we know of that are, that are getting arrested for their faith. That's likely who he's talking about here. Christians going to jail, being in prison because they were followers of Jesus Christ. But man... It doesn't stop there, does it? Like, aren't there ways in which we've experienced separation that we've not been able to be together? And, and because of that separation in time and space, there have been people that have felt isolated and ignored and distant. We're to be remembering one another even when we can't be together. Now, he certainly has a perspective, a, a, a clear application on persecution things like that, but he's, he's got a clear point to make here that we are a united people. We're to, we're to remember those who are in jail as if we're in jail with them, as if we're suffering that with them. We're to remember people who are persecuted physically as if because we're of the same body. There's this clear purpose and perspective of unity. It's, it's striking in our day when we're finding more and more reasons as Christian people to divide. We were just praying about this in, in, in the prayer class as we were finishing up. I don't remember who was voicing the prayer, but this idea that we're separated over things like shots and masks and, 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 and politics and, and you name it. I was in an email conversation with our missionary contact in West Africa this week, and, and he, he made this comment that seemed 
I know in some ways he was saying it in jest, but there's some truth to it. that We would, we, we would find reasons to argue over things like whether barbecue or spicy mustard is the sauce we should be dipping our chicken nuggets in. I wanted to say, well, really, it's sweet and sour, but I didn't think that would help the point. But, but honestly, isn't that true? In the whole scheme of things, in an unshakable, eternal kingdom that will never fail, that each and every one of us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ are in, are not some of the arguments we're having and some of the ways that we've divided not any less significant than spicy mustard or barbecue sauce? Is that not true? They seem so big right now. They seem so weighing right now. They seem so heavy right now. But these are light and momentary afflictions that are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Are these things that we're dividing and pointing fingers at one another and and not enduring next to one another? Judging one another over and separating over. Do we not need to be reminded of this truth? We are a people who stand united. We are a people who when one of us suffers, all of us suffer. We are a people who when one of us dies, we all lose. We all miss out. Christians around the world die regularly because of what they believe. It's not something that happens right here and now. There's a passive-aggressive thing happening to us right now as Christians, but it's nothing compared, nothing in contrast to, to things that are happening around the world. According to opendoors.com, it's one of, the, one of the people who deal with the persecuted church, one of the, one of the ministries that are out there tracking this and paying attention to it. At least eight people every day die. So eight people today, but, but from the time you woke up to the time you go to bed, eight people will die because they've trusted and followed Jesus and will not quit trusting and following Jesus. Now, we know God is sovereign. We know that that life doesn't end without him allowing it. We recognize that. But what gift is taken from us when we lose one of our members? When one of our members doesn't stand and walk with us in unity because they've got some pet peeve, some personal hobby horse doctrine they just, oh, man, oh, here we go. We can't, you know, those Arminians there can't have anything to do with them people. Dispensationalists, covenant people, reformed people. I think the moment that Jesus steps back into eternity, we'll be grateful for his grace over the ways that we've walked in division as opposed to unity. I don't, I don't think there will be any shame because I think he's removed all that. But I think we'll recognize there should have been shame. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Now let's get it right. Let's stand together as one. Let's walk together. Uh, we, we deal with this personally in our church, not so much with people here, but with people we deal with in West Africa. I can think of at least six, seven Christians that I've seen come to faith, be removed from their family, their village, their livelihood, because they trusted and followed Jesus and wouldn't quit trusting and following 
Jesus. One of them, our, our, one of our uh, translators that worked with us, her name's Miriama. We were, we were blessed to be able to provide her money to build an apartment. Many of you gave towards that end. Because her family, as soon as she began following Jesus, she lost her kids, she lost her spouse, she lost her place to stay. She started to try to put together an apartment. She needed money. We helped her get in the apartment, and then they chased her out of that. She doesn't even get to live there now. She's fled the country. She's, I think, in Burkina Faso with plans to come back and stay with Dabo. But the risk is really great for her right now. And we're over here arguing about masks and shots and politics, freedom, pet doctrines. I want to say this as gently but pastorally as I can. Stop it. There's something else I want to say, but that wouldn't be nice. Stop it. We are his people. We are one people. Let's live like it. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, while the world is shaking, us standing united in unison, clinging to and calling on our eternal king. Oh, it's so distinct. It's so different. So stop. Stop it. Go together towards this thing. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to honor marriage and sexual purity. Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let, marriage them, let, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge. These are big words. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. <laughs> marriage is part of God's original design. It goes all the way back to Genesis between Adam and Eve. And, and you can say, oh, that's not really a marriage. We didn't see them get married. Well, Jesus, when Jesus is confronted about marriage and divorce, Jesus points all the way back to Genesis and refers to the statement that was made about uh, a, a man having his, having his own wife and, and them clinging to uh, leave father and mother cleave, becoming one flesh. Paul later refers to it, to that same event all the way back in uh, Genesis when he speaks in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 about marriage and the man being the representative of Jesus and the woman the representative of the church. And then he shows us that it's not just about marriage. It's about a picture and a presentation of the gospel to the world around us. Hold marriage in high regard, he says. Keep it, recognize what it's for. Now, the intent is not to shame people who are single. I think that's a mistake the church has made. Let me just, just hear me say this. I don't think the intent is to shame those who are single. But if you're going to get married, if you're going to get married, you need to recognize we are called to hold marriage in high regard. We are to fight to keep marriages together, not find excuses to see marriages dissolve and separate. I'm not saying there's not reason. I'm not saying there's not reason. But we're going to start at holding marriage in high regard as we seek to walk in this very broken, sinful world, recognizing that people will be divorced. It's not just about the marriage, though, is it? It's not just about marriage. It's about sexual purity. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to honor marriage and 
sexual purity. And he calls it out and he shows how marriage is the place in which sexual morality happens. So rather than us walking around talking about sex as if it's a dirty, unmentionable thing, certainly there's ways in which we should speak about it because of the world we live in. We need to be cautious. There's certain audiences that we need to be careful about what we say and what we listen to. But there's a right way to speak of it, an honorable way to speak of it, a way in which, in fact, I'll just use my own, and I don't know that this is the best, but when my kids were growing up, they were exposed to things quickly, much earlier than I would have liked or expected. More, I was uncomfortable having the conversation. But we began, and you'll appreciate this, me bringing it up, but it was a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now, I don't know that it was intended by my my teaching or my parents, and I, I don't think mom would say this, but somehow I always thought sex was dirty. It's like you don't talk about it, and when you do, it's snickering, you know, <laughs> and, and it, it's just this thing that's secret. And, but in the right context, inside of marriage, it is not immoral. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. So now we say that, and we know what we're talking about. So if you hear us talking about that, you know. What we're saying is code. But, sorry. The reality is, is there is a way in which we should be honorable about this. We should be speaking about it in a way that's healthy and good. I can guarantee you, I promise you this, your kids are hearing about it, whether you're talking to them about it or not. And even if you're homeschooling, you're trying to protect them in every way you can, they're hearing about it, whether you think they're hearing about it or not. And I, 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 I promise you, I, I believe this is true of every one of our parents. I believe this is true. You'd much rather them learn it from you than the world in which we inhabit. It's everywhere. It's on our billboards. It's in our advertisements. It's in the ways that we perceive. And, and just the, it's caught even when it's not taught directly. We live in a sex-saturated world, but there's an honorable way. But, but, but we've got to see and recognize that not only is there an honorable way, there's an unhonorable, inhonorable, I don't know the right way to say that. It's an immoral way. Let's say, let's, let's just use the scripture, it's sexually immorality, right? Like there's an immoral way in which we practice this. And it's not, it's, it's not just sexual immorality in general, although he points to that in regards to marriage. Anything outside of marriage is unacceptable, it's sexually immoral, but inside of marriage, not everything is acceptable either. Like going to someone outside of the marriage. So bringing someone in or watching stuff on the computer or this is adulterous. It's bringing something in. It's defiling the marriage bed. He calls us to be a people who honor marriage and who live pure, sexually pure lives. This is the idea. Not, not, not because this is what makes us good, but because we have been brought into and made recipients of Jesus' eternal kingdom. Because of that, we are called to honor marriage and sexual purity. Next, as recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to strive for contentment, verses 5 and 6. Now, let me just say this. I I, I didn't mention this. I should have mentioned this because it's all connected to the idea of love. There's a love for God that's exhibited when we live this way, when we live sexually pure, honorable before in marriage. And there's a way in which we demonstrate our love for God, but there's a way in which we demonstrate our love for one another. When we save ourselves for our spouses, that's, that's honoring, loving the person you don't yet even know. 
And once you've made that commitment and that covenant, the way that we love one another in that covenant and that commitment, being faithful and honorable to one another in that marriage. All right, back to the next one. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to strive for contentment. And he goes on, verses 5 and 6, keep your life free from the love of money. So hear this, love your brothers, love the stranger, don't forget, in, in loving that, that, don't forget to extend love as far as possible by standing united and love one another in marriage. Like this is the way it's all working out. But don't love money, love people more. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what command do to me. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to strive for contentment. We're called to love one another more than money and stuff. And Jesus said it himself. No one can serve. In Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, the idea there, the mammon, the, the idea is really it's about money possessions, right? It's not just money. It's the things that money provide us. You can't be devoted to both, he says. And here the author of Hebrews is reminding us, you cannot be devoted to both. You cannot live a life of worship given to, devoted to, a life devoted to living towards God if you are loving money. Our lives are to be devoted to the Lord. And, and, and in that way, as we serve the Lord, He doesn't need our money, but we're called to be a generous people. Maybe the clearest way that this works out in the church is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And if you're a member of the church, you're familiar with that passage, where as a result of Peter's preaching of the gospel, the church it becomes visible in ways that had never been visible. And then suddenly there's this people among a people that are presented, committed to the apostles' teaching, devotion, or devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. And they love one another so much that they are meeting each other's needs physically. And if they don't have the money in their pocket, they're selling their stuff and giving it to the needs as each has them. So that as the first few chapters of Acts unfold, we see a church where, where the members of the church have no need. That's shocking. Now, the Holy Spirit has to do that work. He has to sh- enable us to do those things. We're not trying to recreate that. But I believe the Bible is regularly calling us back to this place where we love each other more than we love the stuff we can accumulate or the money that's in the bank love each other more than we love things. Now, this doesn't mean we can't be ambitious. It, it, it means we're ambitious for a different reason. The call to contentment, the call to, to not love money is not a call to not have money. Oh, I can't take that job because, you know, I'm content making this little money. Mu- if I took that job, I'd be making too much money. No, it's not, it, it, the, the idea is we're, we're ambitious for a whole different reason. See, most people, most of the people we know in this world that we live in, they're taking jobs, they're looking for promotions, they're after pay raises to make their own lives better. The Christian is called to be ambitious to the glory of God and the good of his people. The Christian is called to be ambitious to be a blessing to others, to go make lots of money. Go, find a way in the world, accumulate lots of stuff and give, it a bu- give, give a bunch away. Find a way to make lots of money and be very generous. We are not called to be a people who find security in big bank accounts or find identity in having massive properties, although there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. 
But what are we using them for? And what is the reason that we're gaining them or fighting for them for? Are we uncontented or discontented? And so we're trying to build our own kingdom. Or are we contented in this world as we know it, but we're seeking to live as a generous people, being very good and blessing other people with what we've been given? We don't trust in money and possessions. We trust in the Lord. He is our helper. That's the the whole call here, right? So you see it. Don't love money. Don't pursue money. Be content. If you don't have a lot, Remember, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. If you don't have a lot, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Your security is not in whether you have a lot or a little. Your security is in the fact that the Lord has you and is with you. If you have a lot, it's not because you have a lot that you're secure. In fact, I would suggest that anything, if we can learn any lesson out of this season when things seem so unstable, our financial gain and financial wealth here is very shaky. Very shaky. It might just be one of the things that gets shaken away. It will be one of the things that gets shaken away that will not remain. That when God's done shaking, when He's done shaking everything loose, We can't take that with us. So, as recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, we are called to strive for contentment. Again, be ambitious, but be ambitious to be content. Be ambitious to be honoring to God. Be ambitious to be a blessing to God's people. Be ambitious to have an eternal view of His glory and the good of His people. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to follow their Christ-like leaders. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you out of the word. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Remember your leaders. Look back on them, right? There's a way in which we can remember. We can look back in Hebrews 11, and we can remember, oh, man, these people who went ahead of us, these people who set an example for us, these people who, who, who showed their faith, and now it speaks to us. We, we can look back at Paul, people like Paul who have been used to write the Bible, Luke, who wrote this gospel record and this, this history of the early church. And we, oh man, remember, just think. But I don't think that's who he's talking about here. I think these are people that they saw with their own eyes, that even though you can't see Jesus, even though you can't look on him, even though you're not an eyewitness to him, remember those who have gone before you and who have been imitators of Christ and who have demonstrated their faith in Christ. In fact, Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, calls for the same kind of thing. Be imitators, 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Then to the Philippians, he writes, Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk uh, walk according to the example you have in us. There's this idea in which is... Godly men or godly women are supposed to, we're supposed to be able to look out and see them in front of us and follow their example. Now, let's be clear. Let's be clear. These leaders aren't going to be perfect. They aren't going to be Jesus. They aren't going to to, uh, be sinless in any way. They are going to make mistakes. They are going to have finite perspectives. They are going to stumble and fall along the way. That's not what we're called to imitate. Look at their life and imitate their faith. Examine it. 
Listen, we seek to make sure that everyone who comes to us and stands as a leader, in fact, tonight, one of the things we'll do is introduce to you a new deacon candidate, and we'll give you an opportunity to speak about, or, or at least have some say into a deacon candidate who in the weeks to come will be affirmed as a, as a like a deacon, like we're going to affirm him in his role. Um, at a deacon level, at an elder level, we are seeking to make sure that people know as they step into leadership, it is not just about getting your way in some ministry and now you get to do ministry. And No, there, there's a way in which they are to set an example. In fact, Peter writing to the church, in fact, it was interesting, and I, I assume that when people read the passage and, and they pull things out for prayer that that draws us all together. So it was really cool that Kara prayed from this passage earlier, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of suffering of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory of what that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, listen to this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is tough. I'm just going to be honest. It's difficult for us to discern, so we put in some, some checks and balances that we hope will help us walk through this and work this out. It's a difficult thing to look at a person's life and assume whether or not in a year or two years they'll still be faithful. But we walk closely with those who were setting out and saying, these are leaders you can trust and you can follow. Because we know that not only are we called to lead, we're called to set an example. Because we don't get to come down and hammer with a hand and say, you must do this. We know the scripture says, look, calls the church, look at that life. Don't follow the imperfections. Don't follow the unchristlikeness. Imitate that example before you that is like Christ. I know that's not just difficult for us to pick leaders in. I know that's difficult for church members to be a part of. But every one of our leaders, I always say with confidence, I, I'm not, I don't even have a catch in my mind. Every one of our leaders that have been put out in front of you and affirmed in leadership, I believe, are Christ-like examples. Are there ways we can all continue to grow? Absolutely. Are there ways we have made mistakes? Absolutely. I say to you with full confidence, these are men and women of faith, and I am calling you as you see them, examine them, and follow their example. Imitate their faith. And finally, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As Jesus is unshakable as recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, we are called. I'm sorry, I'm trying to go back to my very first point, and I screwed that up. See, I make mistakes. As recipients of Jesus' unshakable kingdom, Christians are called to live lives that reflect the character of their, our unchanging king. As your leaders in this church seek to follow Christ, we're calling you to follow Christ. So you should see us loving you and one another as brothers, as family, as people from the same room. You should see us seeking to be hospitable, welcoming in strangers. You should see us striving for contentment. You should see us uh, remembering those who aren't with us. You should see us uh, um, uh, what, are, what are all um, practicing uh, 
honor of marriage and sexual purity. You should see us striving to follow those ahead of us and follow their example. And brother and sister Christian, you should be doing the exact same thing behind us so that someone else can follow you as you follow Christ and emulate that Christ-like character so that they can learn how to love, their, love one another's brothers, practice hospitality, stand united as a church, strive for contentment, all these things. Let's pray.